Does anybody have anything they're curious about? Mm -hmm. I have a question. So first, in, first in the front and then in the back. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Um, so what if you try to do something nice, but it's for a selfish reason, because you want to have better karma? Is that, does that negate everything? <laughs> the questioner is saying, uh, is asking, uh, I don't know, can you hear the question in the back? What if you do something positive with the sort of selfish motivation that you're going to get some good karma out of it? And the, uh, the, answer, the answer to that, based on what my teachers, my Tibetan teachers have told me, is that, um, is that the, the karma is, is mixed. The karma from this is mixed because the good part of it is that you're doing something beneficial. The negative part of it is that you're clinging to the outcome. And, that, and so, of course, what that means is that at some point in the future, you're going to be very disappointed. <laughs> and I mean, that's, that's pretty self-evident. And whether it's going to be about the outcome of this particular action or about something else, disappointment is going to be the result of having placed a vested interest in the outcome of something. So you have to be careful to try. And that's why taming your mind through meditation is such a good idea, because it allows us to be aware of what's on our mind. So we can kind of see our mixed motivation and try to correct our motivation as best we can. Our motivation will never be 100%. And if we demand that our motivation be 100%, that's another kind of karma that we're, <laughs> that we're imposing on ourselves, this sort of tightness of having to do it perfectly. And I watch Monk. I know how it works. <laughs> I confess right here I am a TV addict. So we'll, we'll, we'll have a... 12-step meeting on this later. Um, uh, but anyway, so that's, that's my thought about that. And there's a question uh, in the, in, I'll tell you, the, the lady in the back and then the gentleman in front of her. Yeah. Can you use your karma, I don't want to say use, I guess that's the wrong word, to, to kind of guide you into your next life as to what you, can you kind of steer yourself into what your next life is going to be through the karma that you generate yeah. in this one? Can it be a conscious decision? Yeah. The the questioner, can you did you hear that question? Is that you know, can you use your karma from this life to sort of steer your future lives? This gives me an opportunity to, to, to make one interesting point that really blew the seminarians' minds. I love to talk to seminarians, first of all, because they are so cool. <laughs> because they're very they're full of idealism and they really want to benefit others. And so that was the first thing I said to all this room full of seminarians. I said, I am so grateful that you are here. And they're probably saying, we're all Christian. Are you okay with that? <laughs> and it's like I'm way okay with that. I am way okay with that because because you know because my teacher said, hey, all of the religions of the world are here for a reason, and they're all here to benefit others. So I said, go out there and benefit others. Anyhow, but what I said to the seminarians is that the Buddha taught that all beings have always existed and always will exist. So that means that everybody in this room, including the insects in the carpet have always existed from what the Buddha called the no beginning of time. But I can't wrap my mind around that. But they have always existed from the no beginning of time and always will exist to the no ending of time and that they go then through a series of lifetimes based on their karma. And so what one teacher told me, he said, if you want to know what your previous karma was, look at your present situation. Meaning that we're human beings. Good karma. <laughs> really good karma because we have more potential to do good than anybody else on the planet. I mean, we may think of our pets as being saints and you know, being bodhisattvas in disguise and so forth, but 
the people who, the, the beings who are not pets in America do not have it easy. Okay, anyway, so, but, so we're human, so that's excellent good karma. And we're living in a country where there is a great deal of opportunity, that's very good karma. We've been exposed to a lot of beneficial things, that's very good karma. So now, how are we going to use these great opportunities we've been given? And so your question fits right in with that which is now we have all this great karma to have been human, to be now, to know right from wrong, because some folks don't know that. Some folks don't know right from wrong. We do. And so we know how to benefit others. We know how to avoid negativity, even though it's hard sometimes. you know. But your question is saying, can we steer our future rebirths through what we do now? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. Because the other half of that quotation the first part of the quotation is, if you want to know what you were in a previous life, look at your present situation. And if you want to know what you will be in the future, look at your present thoughts, words, and actions. Because what you're doing right now is going to determine what's going to happen to you in the future. So that means if you're being beneficial to yourself and, and others, that means that your future life will be very good. It really will be. But if you're harming yourself or frightening others or if you're doing things that harm other people, then you've got a problem because your future life won't be as pleasant. What if you came to the Dharma rather late in life? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how late in life you came to know these things. That doesn't make any difference because what you can do now that you know what Dharma is, now that you know what right and wrong is, now that you know how to be beneficial, what you can do now is completely steep yourself in what's good for you. I mean, they often use, the Tibetans are good at using analogies. The analogy that they use is a, is a garment that has been soiled. If you really thoroughly wash that garment, it will be clean again. If you thoroughly, thoroughly wash it, it will be clean again. So that means no matter how, how late in life we came to all of this, now we have the opportunity to completely steep ourselves in it. And that means we can steep ourselves in the wish to benefit others, which is that altruistic motivation that the Dalai Lama says brings him such great happiness. And so if we think about the benefit of others all the time, or as much as we possibly can, then that's going to completely permeate our body, speech, and mind. And not only that, if we make aspirations for the future, in fact, when uh, people become Buddhists, they're often given sets of what are called munlams or aspirations. And the aspirations say such things as, uh, in Shantideva, in his book, The uh, Way of the Bodhisattva, he says, until uh, all of the illnesses of beings have been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, the nurse, and the medicine itself. We're aspiring to benefit beings as doctors, nurses, and medicine. We're aspiring to be food and drink for people who are hungry. We're aspiring to be a boat for people who need to cross water. We're aspiring to be bridges if they need that. If they need a bed, we're aspiring to be that. If they need a servant, we're aspiring to be that. So in other words, we're aspiring to be what other beings need. In fact, then we also aspire to be born into a good family and be in connection with the Dharma very early. And so no matter what happens now, we can steep ourselves in goodness now so that in the future, that will guide us toward our next rebirth. So it doesn't matter how late you start, because it's all about thoroughness.
how thoroughly you steep yourself in it. Does that? Okay. The gentleman in front of you had a question. Okay, um, I'm wondering what the karmic consequences are of our actions if we if we carry them out with good intentions, but mm -hmm. the results are negative. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually also, my teachers have also talked about this. He said if you do something with good intentions but it turns out badly, he said your good intentions are what carry it. That's actually what carries you is the good intention. And yes, yeah, sometimes that will happen. You know, you try to do something and it just blows up. I mean, I've had this happen to me. You know, you try to do something good and it blows up in your face. You know, you did your best and you're coming from a pure place inside you. And, and you know that. And that's the best you can do. So what is the, the outcome of that for you internally is that you feel good about having tried to do the right thing. So, the, I mean, we, we all hope for having good outcomes, but we can't count on them, They're very much like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So other things that people might, yes? Yeah, to piggyback on Sue's. Well, what, I mean, to, to, to have right mind, right speech, Right. What was the other yeah. Well, it's, it's, I don't remember all the Eightfold Noble yeah, Paths, but, but it's um, like right memory, yeah. right livelihood. Right. You know. You know. Yeah. So mm -hmm. all the rights. Part of that of getting there is is consciously practicing that, right? Mm -hmm. Putting other people first. Mm -hmm. But you're kind of doing that to learn how to do it and to teach yourself to do that. Mm -hmm. So does that also become selfish, or is that then something you're doing for yourself, or if you're doing it because you want to eventually be doing it purely for others, does that make it okay to actually, do you know what I mean, like to consciously say, okay, I'm going to always put somebody else yeah. first, yeah. or? Yeah, the idea is that we're training right now. Yeah. Right now we're training, because we're going to make mistakes continuously. I mean, I mean, you know, i got to confess, when I look at a plate of cookies, I'm looking at the biggest one. <laughs> okay? And, and I mean, so selfishness can creep in all over the place. When you least expect it, it's going to be there. I mean, I'm guilty of willful driving. <laughs> I'm totally guilty of willful driving, which means that I try to be the first person off to the light, off from the light. I try to squeeze yellow lights. It puts other people in danger. It's not right. So you shouldn't do it. But here we are. You know, but so I watch myself while I do this, and I recognize that I make mistakes all the time. But I'm always trying to not look at the biggest cookie. In fact, some Tibetans actually make a habit of just putting their hand on the plate and picking up whatever comes. Ooh, <laughs> that one's burned. Okay, I'm going. I took that one, so I'm going to eat that one. I mean, you know what I mean, but. So it's a training. So we're training ourselves to want to benefit others. And of course, of course, we know that by training ourselves to benefit others, ultimately we benefit. The Dalai Lama said, you know, there's two kinds of selfish people in this world. There are foolish selfish people, and there are wise selfish people. The foolish selfish person is only out for themselves, ever. But the wise selfish person benefits others because they know that ultimately they'll benefit themselves. And he said, and that's just how it is. He said, we have to act like wise, selfish people. It's, of course, it's, but we're training. Because what's really funny is that after a while, it's no longer an act. It, it's actually how we feel. 
Who saw Groundhog Day? Old movie now. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's about, you know, I, I feel that Groundhog Day is about reincarnation, don't you? Because he, he wakes up on the same day over and over again until he gets it right. And there's this pivotal moment in the movie for me. Of course, you know, it's, it's like, it's Hollywood, so it's a tearjerker romantic thing, you know. You know, it's like he's he wants to get the girl, you know, of his dreams and all this sort of things. And he, everything he does is to get the girl. Well, at one point in the movie, he has this opportunity to take advantage of the girl, and he doesn't do it, which is kind of cool because it's like the pivotal moment in American Beauty. Anyhow, but, but, but you get the idea, which is another really cool movie. But anyhow, um, but and he doesn't. But what he says to her is he says, I want to be what you are. You're so good. You know, you're so giving. I want to be what you are. And that's sort of what breaks the spell, if you will. And that's what turns the movie around, is that he wants to be something other than what he is. And so, uh, and so the, the, that movie is about how people can consciously change who they are. And at first it is an act. He's just making it up so that he can impress her. But then after a while, it becomes who he is. And by the end of the film, of course, it's, he has natural instincts toward benefiting others, which, of course, he would never have thought of at the beginning of the film. So, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. So, anyway, yes? Yes? What, what's the vehicle that, uh, by which karma travels from life to life? Okay, yeah, what, what, yeah, what carries your karma? What do you carry then? I, I put mine in a bag. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like canvas because it's really heavy. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, the uh, there there are lots of explanations for this. The one I like the best came from His Holiness the Dalai Lama because you know since I'm not an enlightened being, all I can do is quote them. <laughs> so you know I don't know this for you know I don't know this from in, you know from inside my own mind. I'm just quoting. The, but anyway, um, the mind is said to be a unitary thing. And my mind is not your mind. Therefore, I cannot collect your karma and you can't collect mine. A lot of people come to me and they say, well, didn't the Buddha teach that we're all part of like one big mind? Isn't it just like one big mind and we're all like little pieces of that? And it's like, no. We're all discrete individuals. We're all discrete individuals. That's why I can't collect your karma and you can't collect mine and so, and so forth and so on. So that means I'm responsible for my karma, you're responsible for yours and so forth. Okay, so first of all, we have to get that part straight. Okay, once we, once we recognize that, then that means that every person's mind is unitary, right? It's a unitary thing, but it's broken down into eight functions. Eight functions. There are eight functions of mind. Some places they describe different numbers, but at least, at least six, but probably eight. The, um, the, there are two theories. One says, one says six and the other says eight. I, I like big numbers, so I'm going for eight. The first five functions of mind are related to our senses. You know, the, the sense of uh, tactile sensation, tasting, seeing, hearing, and you know, that, and so that's five, right? So it, it the, and smell, you know. So all of that is the first five functions of mind are related to mind's interaction with phenomena, with input. The body collects information, but the body does not experience it. The mind experiences it. So if you feel hot or cold, your body is conveying the information, but your mind is what's experiencing it as hot or cold. Okay, so then there's a sixth function to mind, and that's thought. How you feel about being hot and cold. Okay, okay you know, 
I hate being hot, you know, so then you, you get scared of being hot. Or I hate being cold, so you get scared of being cold. I mean, you know, so there's this, the, the sixth function of the mind, which is thought. The seventh function of mind is related to the felt sense of self that is sort of pre-thought. It's what makes you jump when a door slams suddenly or when you hear a sudden loud sound, you, you jump. And you didn't even have time to think. You just jumped. Well, what's really cool about this is that this is called the emotional function of mind. The emotional mind, which is really interesting. And, and they're doing tests on people now. To find, uh, they're actually doing tests on meditators to find out what's going on in their minds and how they're and whether they're able what parts of their minds are they using and not using it's I'll get to that in a second then there's the eighth function of mind and it's this eighth function of mind that carries the karma from one life to the next and and sometimes these things instead of being called functions they're called consciousnesses which I think is a confusing word because consciousness means so much in Western psychology it's really hard to say that. So we're just going to say the five functions of mind related to the senses, the sixth, which is, uh, which is uh, thought, the seventh, which is uh, the emotional or self-oriented consciousness or function, and then the eighth, which they actually call the storehouse consciousness or the storehouse function because it stores all of our karmic impressions. It's why we get the sense of deja vu. It's why we get in instantaneous reactions when we meet certain people. We either instantaneously like them or we instantaneously don't like them. It's because of previous interactions. And that's stored in some place that we can't even really get to. And so the sixth consciousness is what we work with when we meditate. We let the thoughts settle down and we rest the mind. And eventually the mind can experience itself as it is without any overlays of conceptual thought. And in this process, it's, it liberates the seventh and the eighth consciousness, is the way I've heard it explained. And so that's why a person can become a Buddha and know all of their past lives after that point and know all of what's going to happen to them in the future because they have bypassed all of these different functions. And it is said that, uh, that really, really um, adept meditators have already disabled the seventh function. And they've actually proven this in laboratories. Um, uh, I don't remember which university did this particular test. I want to say it was the University of, Ma of Wisconsin at Madison. They did this. They put a Tibetan monk in a functional MRI chamber, and they exposed him, and they asked him to meditate. And he had headphones on, and they played him the sudden sound of a gunshot, and he didn't flinch. And, uh, and average people would sort of like jump out of their skin when they, that sound was played to them. But it didn't affect him in the least. And this test was repeated. I think they did this one at Princeton too, if I remember. But anyhow, but uh, they've actually shown that, that adept meditators can do this because they have disabled these functions. And this is part of why it is said that when a person becomes a Buddha, they purify all of their karma. Because all the stuff that's in the storehouse, it's not that it's wiped out, it's just that the, it's, it's rendered as being non-harmful, which is really interesting. It's really, really interesting. So that's what carries. So at the time of death, all of these functions collapse. I use the example of a telescope, although it's not a perfect analogy. 
that all of these consciousnesses collapse into the eighth, and then the eighth is the consciousness that leaves the, I mean, everything collapses into the eighth, and all of them together leave the body and go on to take rebirth elsewhere. And that's how it is that, that people then are born elsewhere and so forth. Although I had a smart aleck come up to me in the seminarians class and say, oh, wait a minute, I got that figured out. How come there are more people? Where'd they come from? Ooh, there's more people on earth today than used to be. So there. <laughs> and I said, and I said, don't worry, the Buddha said there's life on other planets. <laughs> they're just they're just migrating. <laughs> yes. We do not exchange karma. Does sending and receiving in Tang Len relate at all to? Oh, yeah. The, the questioner is asking about the, the the method of compassion meditation that's called Tang Len, or sending and receiving. This is a, a special, really wonderful teaching that the Buddha gave to his disciples, and it ended up in um, in Indonesia, and then it was brought back to India, and in, I forget which century. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna say it was like the ninth century or the tenth century. Uh, of the common era, and then it was taken to Tibet. So this teaching that's uh, called uh, sending and receiving is based on mentally imagining that we give others all of our goodness and mentally imagining that we take on all of their suffering. And uh, yes, it, it's, it's a training exercise. We don't actually take their karma away from them because we can't. Even the Buddha can't do that. Even the Buddha can't give another person an awakening. Even another Buddha cannot remove somebody's karma. But what we're doing in Tonglen is we're training ourselves to have the attitude that wants to be able to do that, that wants to be able to benefit beings even in these types of ways. It is true, though, that beings who have achieved a certain level of spiritual awakening can actually relieve the suffering of others, yes, but they can't remove their karma. So Tonglen isn't actually helping the... You, but you can't say that it's not helping others either because of interdependence. Because, because of interdependence. For example, um, if you have a connection with someone and you go to visit them, it uplifts their spirits, right? So that's interdependence. So if you send them love and good wishes at a distance, that will benefit them. It's not going to change their karma, but it will benefit them. And that's, and that's, I think, what's hard to understand, is that I can't take away somebody else's karma. I can't, like, like if they're sick, I can't, like, say, okay, you now no longer have the karma to be sick. But what I can do is I can ease their suffering by sending them goodness. But really, to, for that to be really effective, a person has to have achieved a certain level of awakening. Other than that, what it's doing is it's training you and it's benefiting them indirectly in that they are now the cause for you to develop compassion, which will eventually uh, uh, result in your awakening. Therefore, they get good karma, not even knowing it. <laughs> which I think is cool. <laughs> so that means if you really dislike somebody and you do Tonglen for them, they benefit as though you had prayed for them. Isn't that cool? I just think that's really cool. That's what the Tibetans have told me. So, what do you think? Other things we have we have time for a couple more. How how long are we supposed to go? When do we? When do we, go? we have another half hour. We, okay. we have the room for about another fifty minutes if we yeah. want. Oh, okay. Well, we won't use that much. Yeah. I'll I'll probably bring this to a close in a, in a little while. But I just if there is is there any other questions or curiosities? Oh, we have two more. Yes, sir. Uh, if you have a life, if uh, your life has 
been where you've been very hurt, and then you've uh, reacted and you've uh, hurt others, and then you come to uh, Buddhism, mm -hmm. uh, how do you deal with uh, the thoughts of, of the past? Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the thoughts of the past being, oh, you mean the people who have hurt you or you have hurt? or is, Okay, all right, yeah. Mm. My, my teacher is, he's 83 years old now. He's amazing. He was one of the generation that was born in the 20s in Tibet. And he was actually able to escape um, the communists uh, after, you know, 1959. It was quite an amazing story. And uh, he came to this country in 1976, and he began teaching the following year. So his teachings are, are just really amazing, and, and especially how they work with how our minds are. We live here in this country, and he grew up in a place where he didn't even know what an airplane was until he rode on one, you know. And so here he is coming from this sort of society to our world, and... We, we ask questions. We asked him questions like this. You know, how do you work with what's happened in the past? And what he has said about this is he said that what you can do, he says, is that you can think of the persons that you have harmed or the people who have harmed you with love and compassion. He said you may not be able to have contact with them, but what you can do is you can think well of them and pray for them in the future, that they have a happy life and that they be free from suffering. This is especially good in situations where we have either caused harm to others or they have caused harm to us. Because if we react to others' harm with a negative mind, bearing a grudge, for example, against the person who has harmed us, then what that means is that in our future life, we'll harm them again, or they will harm us again. And the cycle of negativity will just continue. Whereas, if two people are in an argument, and one finally says, you know, I don't want to argue anymore, I quit. That actually breaks the negative cycle. If, if that person can walk away and leave it be, then that's really positive. But if you keep pushing on that, then it's not positive. So that's, that's kind of what he said. He said, you have to pray for the other person that they have a happy life and that they have everything that you would want to have. And in fact, there's even a Tonglen practice especially for this. Uh, it's in this book. Uh, the Great Path of Awakening, which uh, this is an old edition, but uh, in, in this book they teach this mind training and how to benefit others who have harmed you. And, and my teacher taught me a very simplified method of doing this. He says, what you do is you imagine that the person who you perceive as having harmed you is being in front of you, and that you mentally send them a gift, and that gift is everything you have and own. Give them everything that you have and own. Mentally send it to them as a gift and wish them happiness. He said, because what that does is that kills any hatred that you have toward them. Any resentment that you have toward them is destroyed in the moment of giving. He says, this won't work if you do it just once. He says, you have to do it repeatedly. And if you have a very difficult relationship with someone where the harm has been very great, he says, you have to do it repeatedly until you begin to feel differently. And the same is true for people that you've caused harm to. If you've caused a person harm and, uh, and so forth, then the best thing to do is to do this same practice and say, I am sorry, because sometimes it's not, it's not really appropriate to approach people that we've harmed. If we want to make an amend, it's not necessarily going to happen. It's not necessarily going to be healthy to make that amend. 
This may be better to do it from a distance. And so this practice can be used to make that amend by mentally sending them love and compassion and sending them everything we have and doing it repeatedly. We're, we're going to say, I am sorry for what I did. And I pray that in the future our relationship be healthy and good. And I think that that's, that's a, a way to work on your meditation seat with purifying the, the negative things that you feel and purifying the negative things that others have done toward us. It purifies our side. We can't purify their side, remember. We can't change their karma. But what we can change is how we react. We can change that part. We can do that. And so I, I think that's it. And then additionally, in the Tibetan tradition, they teach purification practices, such as the purification practice of Vajrasattva, in which we recite a mantra and imagine that we are purified of all of our negativity. And that in includes the negativity that, have been, that uh, involved others. So that's another practice that can be learned. Uh, you know, but the, the, the main thing that I think is to break the cycle of resentment. Because if someone harms us, we'll feel resentment. And that resentment actually harms us. The resentment we feel harms us. It doesn't harm the other person unless we do something to harm them in return. But if we're, if we're feeling resentment, that's actually gnawing away at us. Resentment is a form of anger and hatred, and it's actually gnawing away at us and making us into something we don't want to become. You know, so anyhow, I don't know, does that answer the question? Yeah, thank you. And, just, mm -hmm. well, one more thing. Mm -hmm. uh, does this also, uh, this sounds like this also works for one's uh, self. Mm -hmm. In a self-defeating behavior, then you can use Yes, thing. yes, that's exactly correct. If we have a negative view of ourselves, uh, or if we have some resentment against something we've done, we can actually imagine that we're sitting there, and we can actually do sending and receiving practice. On the out-breath, we can imagine that we give happiness, and on the in-breath, we can imagine that we remove our suffering or our flaw. There are additional types of practices that are useful for this, such as the uh, meditation on Chenrezy, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, in which we imagine that light rays come from Chenrezy and benefit us and purify us of all of our negative feelings. And that can help us break self-defeating cycles as well. So those are practices that can be learned. But if at the very least, uh, there's a very easy practice that can be done by anyone without having to learn a lot. Everybody knows what the Buddha looks like. Everybody knows. I mean, you know, the Buddha. You've seen pictures of the Buddha. Here's a picture of the Buddha, you know, here, sitting on the table. You imagine that the Buddha is sitting in front of you in space, and he's made of light. He's not solid like a picture or a statue. And you in your own words, say, Buddha, I need purification for this particular situation, or I need release from this habitual way of thinking about myself, or habitual way of thinking about others. Please grant me that. And then you imagine that light rays come from the Buddha's form. They're golden light rays, and they wash over you, and they remove from you all complication, and all negativity, and all negative karma. And then at the conclusion, the Buddha dissolves into light and merges with you and blesses you. This is a very simple but effective practice to do for these types of feelings, and it's very, very beneficial. Kemper Rinpoche, my teacher, taught me this one a long time ago, and I've taught it to many people. It's very simple and very effective in that kind of thing, so I hope that'll help. Yeah, I think, I think what's really great about all these techniques is that they are so simple and so beneficial. You know, so that's, thank you for asking. There's time for more questions. Is there a support? Yes, sir. <coughs> I've been, uh banging my head against the concept of selflessness for, for years and years and meditating and mm -hmm. stuff. And, and it 
Theravadan tradition. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a really wonderful monk named uh, Santikaro mm -hmm. who describes this, what, what I have found to be a very useful schema where, where we move from selfishness, mm -hmm. unselfishness, to selflessness. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me a lot of what you've been describing is uh, unselfishness, mm -hmm. which involves uh, will and intention right. and, 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 and deliberately refraining from this and that, mm -hmm. which is um, uh, all wonderful stuff. But I, mm -hmm. I'm wondering uh, if you haven't, if a person hasn't really seen through the illusion of mm -hmm. self, Mm -hmm. and ego and all that. Mm -hmm. um, are we just going to keep sliding back down into selfishness? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is, is, is that the problem? I guess another way of putting the question is, what's so important about selflessness? It's unselfishness sounds pretty good to me. Mm -hmm. Isn't that good enough? Yeah. And, yeah, and, and yeah. I was thinking the question, sure. about, well, maybe, the, maybe here's the answer is, no, you'll just keep sliding slowly back into selfishness. Yeah. The, yeah, and, and, and I think what's interesting about the schema as you describe it, you know, as you're describing it, the schema is that we go from being utterly and completely selfish to being somewhat unselfish and then go to selflessness. And uh, what I hear you equating selflessness uh, with is the complete, uh, the complete breakthrough uh, of the illusion that there is a self that is separate from, a, you know, separate from everything. That's what I'm getting. Is that is that your meaning? Uh, yeah, that it's an illusion. Right. Okay. And, and that yeah. we see that we really see. Oh, it is an illusion. That's kind mm -hmm. of like a, like a mirage. Like right. when you're on the highway and right. you're kind of coming up. Right. It looks like I understand. water on the road. And you're like, oh, it's I an do. Illusion. Yeah, I you're do. I do. And and I think if you look at the Buddhist teachings, that's where it's going. That's the ultimate goal of the Buddhist teachings is to break through the illusion that there is a permanent real, concrete, and unchanging self. Because this really does not bear up under analysis. Uh, in, in the Great Path of Awakening, there's a method of meditation taught in which you, begin, you go to look for the self. You actually hunt for it. And you look at the, at the mind that conceives of a self and say, well, where is this mind? What is its color? What is its shape? What is its location? And what that does is it undermines the whole concept of self because if you do this with any type of um, depth, you'll realize as you look that there's nothing there. There is no self that is permanent, real, solid, and unchanging. You won't find it. And it, you, begin to, you begin to get a sense that the self-concept is illusory when you do basic sitting meditation. Because as you're doing basic sitting meditation where you're just watching the breath come in and go out, thoughts arise, and if you let them go, they disappear. That's really weird. Because when you do that often enough, you realize that you can make a conscious choice about what you entertain in your mind and what you don't entertain in your mind. Which means that our self-concept is, is fictional because it's made of those thoughts. Our self-concept is made of those fleeting, intangible, momentary thoughts. And from that we have assumed or taken uh, the idea that there is a permanent self. And this, can, this sort of breakthrough 
I mean, this sort of understanding can be had at an intellectual level when we do some sitting, or even at a slightly experiential level where you go, oh my goodness, this might not be the way I think it is. And then we can get scared and go watch TV. But <laughs> that's what I did. Anyhow, um, and, but, but, but then what we do is we take this conceptual mind and we do a lot of relative conceptual things like be nice to others and put thought patterns that are beneficial that are similar to what we're reaching for, but not exactly the same. And you're right, any kind of habitual thing can be undone. You can slide if you forget to continue training. That's why training has to be continuous. You can't neglect your training, just as when I neglected my physical training, I gained some weight. You know, so when I neglect my mental training, I get more angry. So, you know, selfishness increases and selflessness or unselfishness slides. But what, what we're all aiming toward is, is keeping that training up so that we're training in something that is like where we're going. It's the word that one of the translators used was concordant. I love that word. It's concordant emptiness. It's not the emptiness of self itself, but it is that by being loving, we're erasing boundaries. You know, love and compassion, you know, it erases boundaries. You know, it's like taking a big eraser and erasing the boundaries between me and other people. And that is similar. It's concordant with selflessness. It's not exactly the same, but it's really close. And, and what Jean-Louis Contral the Great says in the 19th century in this book, he says, ultimate, the ultimate understanding of emptiness cannot, be, cannot arise in the mind of a beginner. However, the relative understanding of love and compassion will arise if you train in it. And he says if you properly train in it, the understanding of emptiness will arise naturally and spontaneously. That's what he says. It's all in here. <laughs> and, and Kemble Carter Ribouchet said to me, my teacher said to me, he said, tell everybody that wherever you go, tell everybody that they can achieve complete awakening simply through the practice of love and compassion. And I think that's because that's the ultimate outcome of true love and true compassion which is really cool. But I do invite everybody to take some time in the next day or so to go look for yourself. <laughs> you know, and if you think that yourself is color blue or your mind is the color blue, look again. And, and also the other cool thing is look for the beginning of your mind. <laughs> Not just your first thought that you remember having had years ago. I was hiding under a chair. That's my first memory, is hiding under a chair. Although I could have been in my playpen. I do remember that. But, you know, but there are probably things we remember you know, before that. But there was actually, where does your mind start? Where does it end? And so if you do this kind of examination over the next few days, you might get a surprise. And don't watch TV. It's not, that's not a good reaction to finding nothing. Just resting your mind and relaxing it when you find nothing is the right thing to do. So. Is that okay? I've got time for one more. I don't want to. Yeah. Well, let's see if there's selfish. a. Well, yeah. Let, let's see if there's another person, and then we'll come back to you. How about that? Let's see. Is there anybody who hasn't asked a question? Yes. Yes. And then we'll come back to you, sir. Might be helpful to talk about meditation a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have a specific? Uh, what do you do in meditation? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, in meditation, what's happening in meditation is that you're allowing the mind to come to rest on 
a single object. And uh, the most convenient object is the breath. I mean, we could use an image of the Buddha or a flower and, and place that in front of our visual field and let our eyes rest on it. If you, you can let your eyes rest on it forever, but your mind's going to say, this is boring, and then you'll start thinking of stuff. <laughs> and then the object is that when that happens, you actually return your attention to the object that you're looking at. So that's one way to work with a visual object. Now with a mental, you could use a mental object by imagining that there's a Buddha there or imagining there's a flower there. But I think the most portable and easiest attention device is to use the breath. And so that you sit comfortably in a chair, not slouching you know, backwards or hunched forwards, but sitting upright in a chair or on the floor if your legs will allow that. And, uh, and sitting in your chair and thinking that you are going to spend the next 10 or 15 minutes watching your breath, placing your attention on your breath. And so then you take one deep breath and then you begin to follow mentally with your mind's eye the breath as it comes in and the breath as it goes out. Breath as it goes in, breath as it goes out. And uh, it's best to do this with your eyes slightly open and cast downward. If your eyes are closed, you might be distracted by the, the, the uh, shapes and forms that occur in your visual field when your eyes are closed. So it, I prefer that people leave their eyes open slightly and then their attention can follow the breath as it comes in and their follow the breath as it comes out. Some people like to count. In breath, out breath, they mentally count one. In breath, out breath, they mentally count two and so forth. You can go up to any number you like. But what's important about it is that you allow your mind to rest on the breath and that if thoughts cross your mind, you let them go and don't grab onto them. But if that should happen and you grab onto a passing thought and you begin to think that thought, the moment you recognize you've been distracted by that thought, you recognize the distraction, drop it, and go back to the technique of watching the breath. There are lots of ways for doing this, but this is the easiest. It's just recognize that you've been distracted, drop it, and go back to the technique of watching the breath. And uh, I want to make a point of saying that I never use the word focus and I never use the word concentrate when I teach meditation because it implies a huge amount of effort which is unnecessary and makes people clamp down on their minds too hard. And that's why a lot of people say that when they start meditating they have a flood of thoughts. It's because they're clamping down too hard on their minds. And they're not just allowing their attention to rest on the breath as it comes in and goes out. The function of doing this is because if you do this then the thoughts will become less intrusive and they'll actually begin to be fewer of them. There'll, there'll be fewer thoughts and actually your mind will be more absorbed in the activity of letting the mind rest on the breath. Your mind will be more absorbed in that. And as your mind becomes more absorbed in that, you actually get some mental rest. You actually get some mental quiet and mental rest from this. And they're studying this phenomena at uh, three universities. They're studying it at University of Wisconsin, they're studying it at Princeton, and they're studying it at UC Davis. And they're actually showing that there are beneficial health and emotional effects from doing this style of meditation. And that, we, and that what happens is that, is that it disconnects worry. Because when people worry, they're intentionally thinking about something repeatedly, thinking that it's going to make a difference. And when really nothing is happening, but we're wearing a groove in ourselves and making ourselves sick by thinking and worrying about something that is probably never going to happen. And whereas if a person meditates, what are they doing? They're letting go of thoughts that go by. 
They're just letting go of every thought. They're not saying, oh, this thought's good, I'm going to think this one. Oh, and this one's bad, I'm going to reject that. They actually let go of all thoughts. They're equal opportunity. They let go of every thought that arises, except the very tiny thought, I want to stay with the breath. That thought will arise from time to time, and that will remain. But that's it, and that's, that's a description of how meditation is pursued. There are lots of other forms of meditation. Some people chant a mantra. Some people prefer to listen to music. Uh, but this is the method I feel is the easiest to pursue and it's probably the most beneficial of all of those. So does that answer your question? Mm -hmm. Is there something further you'd like to ask? Um, well, you said there were different techniques for letting go of your thoughts. Maybe you want to elaborate on that. Yeah. The, um, the main technique, there are two techniques. One is to label the thought thinking and then to drop it, and the other one is just to drop it. Those are the two techniques I've learned. Uh, for letting go of thoughts. One is to actually label it as thinking. You don't say, oh, that's a good thought, or oh, that's a bad thought. You just let it go. Now, there are still yet other traditions of Buddhism that will label the type of thought that it is and then drop it. But the Tibetans basically say, just label it thinking and drop it, or just drop it. Because <laughs> if you just drop it, then there's no comment. And then you just go back to the technique. So does that address your question? Yeah, OK, thank you. And then the gentleman had the question. Are you, you okay? Okay, the, the lady has a question. Um, I am Christian, and I am from Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. yes, uh, most of the people there is Christian, and mm -hmm. Catholic especially. Mm -hmm. So for me, all the Buddhist concept is totally different. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I have a question about the statue, mm -hmm. the things that I see some that have many arms. Mm -hmm. And... Um, yeah. I think my question is, what is different that those one that those just have two arms mm -hmm. and those one that have different arms? Right. And if you, as a Buddhist, mm -hmm. I'm saying all right, Buddhist, yeah, um, will will call yourself, what that you believe just in one God? Oh yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. I, I understand that Buddhist is not a God; it's mm -hmm. a prophet, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what is the difference in that, because it's totally new concept for me. Right. I'm totally ignorant about it. That's okay. That that's actually good because it's good to learn things. It's really good to learn things. So I'm I'm really happy with this. This question is excellent question. The um, the the Buddha when he was alive, he was asked, "Are you God?" Because the people who lived at that time they wanted to know, and he said, "No, no, I'm not God." And they said, well, are you an ordinary human being just like us? And he said, I am an awakened human being, which really kind of put him in between. He's not ordinary, but he's not God. Okay, so he didn't claim to be God. This, this is very interesting because the Buddha also did not claim to be sent by God or to be a representative of God. He wasn't saying, oh yes, there's no God. He didn't say that. But he also didn't say, oh yes, there is a God, and this is what he told me to tell you. So it wasn't, he's not a prophet either. He said, my teaching is about how to end suffering. So he said, that is my teaching. How do I bring, how do we bring suffering to an end? And he says, and you bring suffering to an end by taming your mind. Okay, and then letting go of negative actions. And then that brings happiness to the mind. 
and then happiness being brought to the mind, there's no suffering. So that he said, that's all of my teaching. Now, what has happened since that time, since that time, is that there have been many saints, just like in the Christian tradition, there have been many saints. And those saints are other beings who attained the same state as the Buddha. Just as at the time of Jesus, there were uh, the disciples of Jesus, and many of them could work the same miracles. Not all of them, but many of the same. And uh, that they were empowered by him, and through their faith, they were able to accomplish miracles. Well, this is also true in the Buddhist tradition. There have been many saints that also accomplished many miracles and benefited beings. And some of those are the ones we see depicted in statues. Just as in Catholic churches, we will see statues of St. Teresa, we will see statues of Mary, we will see many different statues of Mary, actually. Uh, yeah, and you'll see statues of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and things like this. It's not literally meaning that you're going to see Jesus with the, 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 you know, his heart on fire, or you're going to see Mary with her heart on fire. We're not really going to see this. This is the um, sort of uh, beyond, the vision beyond of, of a holy person, how they would experience this, okay? Because they don't see things like we see things. So this doesn't literally mean that when people see Jesus, they'll see this. They won't see this. And so it is with the many arms of the, some of the statues that you'll see have many arms. This is indicative of their ability to help beings, that they have the ability to help many beings at one time. The, the biggest example of this is the Bodhisattva of Compassion, Chenrezy, uh, who, when he was an ordinary person, said, may I benefit every being that I come in contact with, and may I never myself become a Buddha until I have benefited and shepherded all beings into awakening. So it is said that when he got discouraged, he was going to let go of his vow, and his body broke apart into a thousand pieces and that his teacher put him back together with all of the arms to benefit other beings. So this is a story. This is a story that talks about his commitment, but it doesn't literally mean that you're going to see 1,000 arms like that. Now, your other question was about God. You know, do Buddhists believe in one God? And this is something that seems to be up to individual Buddhists, because you will actually meet some Buddhists from Buddhist countries who believe in God. They will, uh, the God that created the world. And there will be other Buddhists who do not have that belief. It's individual, because remember, the Buddha didn't teach no God. He also didn't teach there is a God, and this is how you should relate to him. He taught about suffering and how to end suffering. So that means you actually might meet people who are both Christian and Buddhist. They'll practice Buddhist meditation, but have Christian belief. And I have met these people. They're, it's very interesting. Now. Do Buddhists believe in God? This is a really good question because some Buddhists believe in enlightened mind. The idea that mind is awakened. That your mind, my mind, has as its basic nature awakening. Always from the past, always into the future. Is that God? I don't know. Some people would say yes. Some people would say that uh, Mahayana Buddhists believe in a God idea, not a person but this awakened mind would be like God. Some people have even gone so far as to say the enlightened mind of Buddha, or Dharmakaya, as it's called in uh, the Tibetan Buddhism, is like some people's idea of God. But not all Christians have the same idea of what God is. Even Christians disagree about what God is. And so if Christians don't necessarily agree, Buddhists probably won't agree either. 
you know. But so, so the sta the many statues are the saints and the other ben the other beings who have become Buddhas because there's not just one Buddha; there'll be many. But do not adore these statues. Ah, interesting. Okay, actually, we have a little flower here in front of this picture. Does this mean that we're adoring the picture? Yeah, kind of. Okay, in your home. In your home, I predict that you will have a shrine. A what? A shrine, or an altar. I'm joking. Um, I am actually not Catholic. Yeah, I know, but I'm but I'm going to make a little joke. Yeah. Okay. I'm, okay. I'm going to make a little joke. My little joke is that everybody in this room will have a small altar in their home. It's just a joke. It because it will be all of their pictures of their family, right? You have a picture of your aunt and your grandmother. And some of them are in golden frames. Does this mean you're adoring or worshiping your Aunt Mary? No. You're honoring what this picture represents to you. you. Aunt Mary did not ask you to put her in a golden frame, but you did because you really love her. And sometimes, yeah, you put little flowers and make it look very nice, and sometimes the flowers will be plastic or made out of silk, but you'll make the area where your family pictures are very nice. And you're not really worshiping the picture. You're just saying, I honor this as a memory. Just as when Americans see the American flag, they place their hand over their heart. They're not worshiping a piece of cloth. I mean, really, they're not. They're saying, I honor what this flag means to me. It's my freedom. I believe in freedom, and I believe in what this flag means. And that's the same. We're honoring the, the statue or the picture could care less. The picture doesn't care. The Buddha didn't ask to be offered anything. We're saying we honor what this is because this stands for what we can become. So I hope this is helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, oh, my. We, we, are you guys okay for a couple more questions? Uh, okay. Okay. The, the lady then. Do you recommend any uh, books for people who are new to this? Yeah. The, the main book that I recommend for people is the book called Dharma Paths. P-A-T-H-S. Dharma is the first word in paths. P-A-T-H-S. And it's, uh, and it's published by Snow Lion. Rather than give you the author's name, I'll just give you the publisher. Okay? Thank you. Okay. Well, I see that the people are starting to leave, so we'll stop here. Uh, but we'll end with, uh, we'll end with uh, kind of a very Buddhist thing, which is where we'll mentally uh, dedicate uh, the goodness of our being together tonight. Uh, we'll mentally dedicate that to the benefit of beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere be free of suffering. May they come to happiness, and may they be free in all ways. So we'll mentally, quietly dedicate our merit to all sentient beings. Okay, thank you. And I, and I have little bookmarks, and there are still cookies. Um, and so if anybody would like to have a bookmark, I'll station myself by the cookies. <laughs> Thanks again for everybody. Thank you all.